I am so honored to be here today. This is an absolute delight to see all of you. When I heard we had a full house, I was a touch nervous, but I was really more stoked about our time in the Word together. So full disclosure, when you registered for this class, um, the, all your contact info is on there and mostly your home phone. So I actually took the time to call your wife <laughs> and I asked her, what is it that your husband needs to hear today? And um, she told me. Uh, so in all fairness, I thought, well, I should probably call my wife and ask the same thing. And she said, well, my husband's calling other married women. That's not a good sign. So I'd like it if he stops that. So hey, we're all in this together, guys. Um, I'm preaching to myself. Everything you hear me say, I'm saying to myself. So if I'm giving you some direct pointed questions or comments or maybe something other that the Holy Spirit would give you conviction. It's coming right back to me. So um, here's what I want to do. The, when I was kind of joking about when I called your wife, what was the first thing that popped in your mind? What was the one thing that you, that you said, wow, what's one thing my wife would like me to hear, do, change, do more of? Here's what I'd like you to do on your handout. Bottom of page three, take a moment and just jot down a few of those things that come to mind. We'll come back to them. But men, our honesty starts here, okay? Be honest. Think about it. You don't have to write out full paragraphs. Just a couple of things that you know of. Later on, when we have table discussion. Hopefully, you have time to get to this. And it could be the number one thing that you take away from this. Um, so take a quick moment. And I'm going to continue, but just keep on writing there. So, um, so I'm just here. This is, as Ron mentioned, this is quarter three. I'm building off the foundation that Ryan and Scott had laid in the previous quarters. So here we go. I'm going to open us up in prayer here. Holy Father, thank you, Lord, for this gathering of men, men that long to know you better, men that long to live out the gospel as husbands and as leaders. May we find strength and encouragement and conviction in your word. Father, I yield myself to you. May you be glorified this morning above all things. Give us ears to hear and courage to act. We pray this in the majestic and saving name of Jesus. Amen. All right, guys. Today is the gospel man and his wife. Specifically, what does God's word say about marriage and leadership as a husband? If you're married, great. This is for you. If you're on the right bus, we're going on in the right location here. Um, so if you're single, it's still for you. So you need to see the honest truth about what marriage is and what it can be. So as a single person, you have this great opportunity in your life to take a deep dive into your relationship with Christ without distractions. And believe me, they're coming like a freight train. And you'll think back to your single years and go, wow. What I do with all that time? So this is a time that you can take advantage of your life to make the most important relationship solid and secure. I recently read this statement. Those most ready for marriage are those who lead it, need it the least. Think about that for a moment. Those who are most ready for marriage are those who need it the least. The point is this, that men who find their sufficiency in Christ are probably not going to suffocate their new bride with all their neediness. 
So the word need the world needs more men who are content in Christ and are order their lives around his kingdom and not their own. So when you do get married, it will be an awesome thing because you have first things first. That is Christ. So young and old, I'm glad you're here. So here we go. Let's jump in. Ron gave me a brief introduction that was awfully kind. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about me. I've been married for 28 years now. We've got three kids. Wow. Yeah, sometimes I say the same thing. Wow. Not with my wife around. Uh, <laughs> we have three kids now in college. Um, uh, ben is 21, Emma's 20, and Luke will be 19 tomorrow. He's sitting right here. So if you want to start your birthday punches, be my Matt, you can be first up. So, sorry, son. Um, We've been attending Desert Springs since 94, and we've been involved in marriage ministry for several years. So on your handout there, first fill in the blank, your wife and your sanctification. A young man said to me after three months of marriage, gosh, I thought I was doing okay. Then I got married. What happened? Newsflash, you are a selfish sinner, and you're married to a selfish sinner. You are not perfect, and neither is your wife. Even though this seems obvious, many people get married with the unrealistic expectations about whom they are marrying. Paul Tripp famously said, the person that you dated is an imposter. The real person is the one you married. <laughs> amen, brothers? Amen. Your wife is saying amen. I promise you that. So here's the point. You both bring something destructive into your marriage. Guess what that is? Sin. That's exactly right. The greatest source, personally for me, in terms of sanctification, has been my marriage, my kids, and my golden retriever, Jack. Any of you had the joy of raising a puppy? Just a show of hands. Gosh, I thought I saw the look of exasperation on your faces. So that might be it. Those of you who have kids? Okay. Yeah, even more. Same exasperation. Married? Yeah, okay. Most of you guys here. So... You'll agree with me. Everything was fine. When you can live in this bubble of selfishness, you don't get rubbed up against anything. All of a sudden, your wife comes along, your kids come along, your dog comes along, and you realize, I'm incredibly selfish. But God is rich in mercy, and he wants to um, show us that we are not all that we are created to do because of the fall of sin. There's still inside of us, sin inside of us, that God graciously intends to rip out of our lives. It obstructs the way we're meant to be and designed to do. Sin is the biggest obstacle to a marriage of unity, understanding, and love. Number two, God is using these difficulties in your life to transform you. Meaning, God is looking to rescue you from you. If that mess of me song by Switchfoot's running through your head, it makes sense. I think it fits. Listen, because he loves us, he's willing and gracious to smash our momentary happiness in order to rescue us and to transform us. Has anyone read the book, A Severe Mercy? Show of hands. A few of you. Fantastic book that highlights the lengths that God will go to to rescue us from ourselves. So this is a paradigm shift. When you get it, you begin to see things differently. Difficulties become opportunities for God to transform you. Difficulties become opportunities. You think differently. 
you don't wallow in the difficulties because you're considering God is at the center of all of this. James, the brother of Jesus, says, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's what we want to be. We want to be lacking nothing. And it comes at the beginning, trials of various kinds. With this in mind, men, there is hope for you and for your marriage. God is in the middle of your circumstances. He's using them to mold you in what he created you to be. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Here's another Paul Tripp quote. Somehow, way, this fallen world and all it contains will enter your door. But you do not have to be afraid. God is with you. He is working so that these grieving things will result in good things in and through you. That's a paradigm shift. There is hope for you in your marriage because God is relentless in his process of sanctification. This side of heaven, we are always under construction. All right, brothers, if you have your Bibles, take a look at Genesis 2, if you would. We're going to begin reading in verse 18. Here we see the high point, the pinnacle, the, the absolute climax of creation, this narrative. We have first the creation of the heavens and the earth, and light and darkness, then land and sea, fish and animals, and then the triune God brings a young couple, a man and a woman together to unite them in this beautiful thing of marriage. Starting in 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man, whatever the, sorry, Whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and, and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper found fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, at last, this is bone of, sorry, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Ray Ortland says of this text, Quote, the first claim of the Bible then, setting the stage for marriage, is that manhood and womanhood are not our own cultural context. Hum the human concept is far too small an artificial context for the glory of our sexuality. Manhood and womanhood find their true meaning in the context of nothing less the heavens and the earth, the cosmos the universe, the entire creation. That is the first claim of the biblical love story, end quote. 
So we see that the Bible begins with the wedding of Adam and Eve and ends in the book of Revelation with the wedding of Christ, his church. This is a sweeping narrative of Christ and his redemption of his church. We are the bride of Christ. Christ beginning to end. Thank you, Clarice 2018. Revelation 19.7. Let me read that for us. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen and bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these things are true words of God. Amen. We, the church, are the bride of Christ, which includes, by the way, marrieds and singles. Every scripture is intentionally drawing a picture of the intimacy of marriage. One flesh and the future union of the church with Christ is as beautiful as it is mysterious. Thinking of us as the husbands of Christ is a beautiful thing. The older I get, the more... I begin to understand it. It just begins to get, I see this beautiful picture of this union played out with my wife, and it's a wonderful thing. Marriage is God's idea, but it's also a human institution. It does reflect the character of our current culture, which is certainly under attack by those who would like to redefine what marriage is. More on that another time, but for now, men, we see the truth, And we know the truth. Amen? Amen. So what do we know from Scripture about marriage? Number one, it's instituted by God. God invented marriage. Then we should make every intention to understand and submit to the purposes for it. Number two, marriage is designed to be a reflection of the saving love of God for us in Jesus. We are the bride of Christ. With that backdrop, let's jump into Ephesians chapter 5. That's printed in your handouts there. Here's what I'd like you to do. While I read through this, um, your task is to circle the words love, loves, or loved as we go through this. And we'll do a little tally. All right, here we go. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself." For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And here, Paul quotes um, Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Yet let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. Give me a tally. What did you guys get? How many circles do you have on your page? 
Six, seven, all right, someone, maybe a different version. You're just looking for bonus points, perhaps. So whoever has seven, that's great. So by my count, I've got eight. So here we have, Paul um, mentions this six times in eight verses. Do you think he intends to make a point here? I believe so. Guys, I need to preach this to myself over and over and over and over. You don't have to tell me to be selfish. I'm really good at that, sadly. I must be relentless in my practice. We must be relentless in our practice of actively loving our wives and using the scripture as a backdrop for that. So, how do we love and nourish and cherish our wives? I've got 10 suggestions. If you flip the page, a few spots to fill in. Number one, pursue holiness. This is the key to leading your wife in Christ. Husbands cannot lead where they have not been. How do you lead in holiness if you haven't been there? Paul admonishes Timothy regarding his role as pastor. Keep a close watch on your, wife, on your life and your doctrine. This is true of you, men, because you are the pastor of your home. If holiness is found lacking in your lives, then it will likely be lacking in your families as well. The greatest encouragement to your wife is your growth in Christ. She will feel most secure when you are actively in the word. Again, you cannot lead where you have never been. Number two, live in grace. We give grace as we understand it. What we understand of grace is how we extend grace to others. It's a direct relationship. If you see that you are a wretched sinner saved by grace, then it's easy to extend grace to others because you're coming from a position of understanding of who you are. No one gives better grace than someone who is convinced that he needs it as well. Peter says, Husband, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Model and practice grace in your home. Be eager to extend the same grace that you've received. Your wife should find you approachable, kind, and gracious. Number three, forgive, forgive, forgive. If you are constantly reminded how God has forgiven you through the blood of Christ, then like grace, you can't wait to extend forgiveness to others. Be kind and considerate one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. Your wife is not the only sinner in the room. Suspect your own heart first. So when your wife blows it, she says something hurtful, give her the benefit of the doubt. She didn't wake up that morning planning to say something disrespectful to you. It's not the first thing she thought of when she rolled out of bed. Live with her in an understanding way. Be gracious and eager to forgive. Extend kindness knowing that a gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. One last thing before we move on to this, guys. When you're in a fight, some kind of conflict with your wife, hear me on this. 
the silent treatment is not some kind of you know, spiritual forbearance. It's not. It is just sinful manipulation and it's selfish retribution. I'm not talking about going to neutral corners to cool off in the midst of a difficulty. Um, what I'm talking about is the kind of silence and isolation that is intended to inflict pain. Men, it's sinful and it's wrong. Number four, provide. Most husbands recognize the need to provide financially. Paul states, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Guys, for all means, bring home the bacon, mow the lawn, change the oil, fix the roof, but don't stop there. You must be the spiritual leader as well. Enjoy. Go to worship each Sunday. Make the Lord's Supper a priority. Not in a legalistic way, but it's more of a lifestyle that says, hey, this is how we roll. This is what we're about. Make worship and study at home a habit. Lead your wives in an understanding way, in the word, pray together. Guys, just keep it simple. It's really not that complicated. Let me just give you a practical idea. So let's say that the next time you're going to go on a road trip, suggest that you want to listen to a sermon series. Take the initiative and tell her in advance, this is what you'd like to do for part of the trip, not the whole thing, but for part of the trip. Then ask her, what would you like to hear? What's something that you would be interested in? Bring her into the process, the decision-making process. So guys, don't think that your job is done providing food, clothing, and shelter. Your wife is body and soul. She needs your spiritual leadership as well. Five, practice humility. The, word makes, the world makes much of power and position. In God's economy, it is exactly the opposite. In Matthew 20, 26, we see whoever would be great among you must be the ser- your servant. We lead by serving, and uh, often that kind of serving is sacrificial. Think back to Ephesians 5, 25. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, this implies sacrifice. Husbands, you are the head servant of your home. Model it at home. In humility, you must value others before yourselves. Six, persist in joy and thanksgiving. Men, you set the tone in your home. You establish the culture at your home more than anyone else. It's not your moody teenager. It's not your fussy two-year-old. It's not even your cranky golden retriever that you want to throw through the roof, out the window, or give to the neighbor. It's you. It's me. So be joyful in the Lord. Be constantly in thanksgiving to God for all his good gifts. We are outrageously blessed. Express your gratitude as often as you can. Seven, be lavish in your love. No wife has ever said, yeah, my husband's a great guy, but you know what? He just loves me too much. Doesn't happen, does it? Make your wife feel treasured, nourish her, and cherish her. Give her compliments, buy her flowers, just because you thought it would brighten her day. No agenda. Buy her a small gift on your next business trip because 
Something about that just reminded you of her. Be affectionate. Give her a hug from behind when she's washing dishes and then scoot her over to help dry or do some washing yourself. Carve out time for her to escape from the demands of home. Encourage her to pursue godly female relationships. Thank her for the care that she provides for you and your children. You're done with the meals. Thank you, sweetheart. That was fantastic. Thank you. Take her on dates. Remind her how beautiful her eyes look. There should be never, ever a doubt in her mind that you treasure her above all others. What does that imply? If you're in a restaurant and you hear some fancy heels clicking behind, you know it's probably going to be an attractive woman. Guard your eyes. Pay attention. Guess where she's looking? In your eyes. Guys, allow your children to see the same affection. When you... Your embrace and kisses should just be a normal part of life. It should be beautiful. And maybe even a little embarrassing to your teenagers. But that's okay, because you're modeling what God intends. By the way, guys, hear me on this one. The absence of anger or harshness is not tenderness. Even though you may never raise your voice, that does not mean that you're being loving and tender. Are you with me? you understand what I mean? It's a subtlety. Eight, protect and be strong. Your wife needs your strength. She needs to know that you're willing to use that strength for her good. You serve as her defender. You must be willing to stand up and defend her against all who would do her harm. And guys, sometimes, as are members of their own family, think of all enemies, both foreign and domestic. I wish we had more time to talk about that. Never allow her to be in harm's way. Be watchful for trouble. Be wise to threats. You are her sheepdog overwatch. It's you. Nine, glory and weakness. That is your weakness, not hers. Your wife should know you as a man who readily depends upon the Lord. When she sees your weakness and vulnerability, she sees your dependence and strength as from the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about wallowing in weakness, but to glory in it. Look to Christ as the model of your manhood. Be in prayer. Your shepherding begins on your knees. Lead the way in asking forgiveness when you sin. Guys, I have a little gem that we learned a long time ago. Write this one down. Um, this has been very helpful almost 30 years now. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Very simple. Now, a derivation of that might sound like this. I spoke to you in a disrespectful way. It was sinful and wrong. Will you please forgive me? Keep it simple. Ten. Rounding third year, guys. You're doing well. Live with God's glory in mind. Live with God's glory in mind. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it 
all to the glory of God. Model purposeful living. We are always in the shadow of God's glory. Demonstrate to your bride that every moment matters. Every person is significant. Every task is important. Laugh when you play with your kids. Sweat when you work hard. Not that I need to tell you to do that or not do that. Sing aloud when you worship. And listen to your wife when she has something to say. So, if you're sitting there, okay, great, I got these 10 things. Uh, I've just described the ideal husband that's some kind of part human, part machine, some spiritual cyborg, and you go, that's impossible, I can't do that. Well, guess what, you're right, you can't do that. You can't do that alone, that is. You need Christ as your guide, your power. So all this is impossible without God. That's your next fill in the blank there. Guys, you must be a Christian. You must be transformed. If not, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. It is impossible to be the servant husband that God has called you to do to be without the strength of the Lord. There are men who are dangerously deceived in thinking that they are Christians because they go to church and they do good deeds. Guys, this is the most dangerous, treacherous position to be in. You think you're safe, but you are not. But once we look into the mirror of God's word, we really begin to see who God is and how we are saved by grace. It is God and his word that cuts through the deceptions of our hearts and to show us who we really are. I was once this deceived man. I thought I was a Christian until I was confronted with a profound yet simple question as a young man. This is the same question that Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16. Jesus begins with, who do people say that I am? Referring to others. But then he gets personal and asks his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Peter responds as revealed by God, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. How would you answer that same question? It's a very simple question, but your answer will ring for eternity. Can you say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? We can never be the husband God wants us to be without really knowing God personally. Christians know God. They have been reconciled to him. And they can say with Paul that we are his workmanship created by Christ for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have God's empowering help to do that which we cannot do for ourselves. Take an honest look at yourself. Are you really in the faith? If not, praise God. This is your wake-up call today, right here. It is by his grace that we have this new understanding of your true position before him. Let's face it. Any husband can pull himself up by his bootstraps, determined to do better, but it's only a man whose identity is firmly rooted in Christ that can make authentic changes that please God, changes that give him glory and that are lasting. Brother, if you feel God's tug in your heart today, run to him in faith. Talk to your discussion leader or anyone else 
in the room. If you don't know where, God, where you stand before God, get that answer today. The final wedding in glory. Live with eternity in mind. What we see here is this wonderful picture of marriage, what it represents about us being the bride of Christ, we the church, what he intends to do. And from that, we have this wonderful example of Christ, how to live, how to love, how to care for others, how to care for our wives. And that same example that we see, eventually we will be in glory and that union will be unbelievable. So in conclusion, husbands, you have been given the glorious task of leading your homes in Christ. Leading takes thought and intentionality. How you are leading your wife, how are you leading your wife in the Lord? What principles and practices and pursuits are you employing for her good and the glory of the Lord? Men, there is no greater calling for a Christian husband to be the true head as Christ loved the church, and that is sacrificially. Marriage is a brilliant creation, but it is not God. We worship God, not the marriage. Let's be careful not to reduce Christianity to a belief that helps us to be good husbands. The biblical narrative centers on a marriage with Jesus. The earthly marriage is just a shadow. I've got a quote here, and we're going to wrap up before we pray. It's from John Piper. Very soon, the shadow will give way to reality. The partial will pass to the perfect. The foretaste will lead to the banquet. The troubled path will end in paradise. A hundred candlelit evenings will come to their consummation in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this momentary marriage will be swallowed up by life. Christ will be all and in all. And the purpose of marriage will be complete. To that end, may God give us eyes to see what matters most in this life. May the Holy Spirit whom he sends make his crucified and risen son supreme, the supreme treasure in our lives. And that that treasure so satisfy our souls that every root of every marriage-destroying impulse is severed and destroyed. And may the marriage-watching world be captivated by the covenant-keeping love of Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, it's you that we celebrate. It's you that we proclaim. It's you that we make much of. We gather here today in humility and obedience. We are eager to know more of you and how to live as gospel men, men that are found mature in Christ. Father, bless us with wisdom and courage and resolve. By your provision, may we be men and husbands of substance, men that are called to be yours. We pray this in the glorious and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.